0: So uh, we're very fortunate. Welcome, Maharaj. So happy to have you with us. It was perfect timing. It was like Nardamuni right when the uh, all of the Pandavas were celebrating in the new assembly hall. Nardamuni appeared right at the perfect time. Dainana appeared at the perfect moment. And uh, with us is a very special guest. There's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, 20, 2020 has been a uh, year of great upheaval and change and frustration and confusion for so many people. And uh, with us today, we have His uh, Grace Sridhar Nanda Maharaj, who I've always very much appreciated. I've never met, I've never had the opportunity to meet personally, but very much appreciated uh, the clarity and the uh, the the accuracy of of his of his insight in terms of uh sharing Krishna consciousness. He's uh he's a senior disciple of his, uh, his divine grace, Asha Bhaktivedanta, Prabh- Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Um he has a uh, he was on the team of devotees that helped give us the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth cantos after Srila Prabhupada left the planet. And uh so much more, I mean so much Maharaj has done. So we're very happy to uh have you with us today, Marj? Thank you so much. What's your name? Uh, my name is Ananda Mirari Das. Hi, Krishna. Um, and today, we're the topic that we've asked Marj if you could speak on. It's this idea of social activism, and specifically talking about this verse action in inaction and inaction in action, because uh, there's a lot of different things going on socially. And so I'll I'll stop there and I'll hand it over to Mars. Thank you so much for being here with us.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's uh, thank you, thank you very much. Um, That is verse, I believe, four eighteen from Bhagavad Gita. Let's see, Gita four eighteen, yes. So I'll read the verse I I assume that's the one you were referring to um Krishna says karma jatpa karma akarmani akarmanyacha karma jaha savudhiman manusheshu sa yukta krishna karma krit and i think also there's a um Actually, this is a whole section of the Gita, really, on talking about karma. First of all, I should explain that um, that the word karma in Sanskrit means a number of things. Um, literally, it just means action. It means it can also mean duty, for example, in the Bhagavad Gita. Especially in chapter 18 and elsewhere, uh, when Krishna is speaking about our duties within the system of uh, Varnashram, actually, he speaks mostly about the Varnas, not the ashrams. But when Krishna is talking about social duties, such as or occupational duties, to be a teacher or priest, which is a Brahmin, or to be a, um, a governor or a warrior, kshatriya, vaisha, to uh, give lots of money to sannyasis. Now, vaisha actually means. Uh, that was a joke. Avaisha means someone that does mercantile work, uh, you know, farming or um, trade. Those are the two examples Krishna gives, actually, farming and trade. And um, shudra, worker, artisan. So when Krishna's talking about those duties, he calls them karmas. And uh, so the root of the Sanskrit word karma is simply uh, Ker, K vowel R, which of course devotees would pronounce probably Kri, as they say Krishna, but anyway, so it's actually the vowel R, uh, and so uh, that verb which we still have in English, by the way, from that Sanskrit word verb Kri or or the word karma, words in English like create or increase, crecer in the Latin languages. So, um, so it really just means action—something that you do intentionally, not something that happens to you, but just something that you do consciously. That's what the word karma means. And uh, because in the material world, uh, whatever we do provokes a reaction; we get a, 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 a corresponding reaction. Therefore, the word karma comes to mean the set of actions and reactions, which uh, constitute what you could call the law of karma, the cosmic principle of karma, that uh, we are rewarded and punished for everything we do in this world. So that's how you get karma meaning that system. So... And, of course, the word karma as action can also refer to Krishna's own activities. It can refer to spiritual activities. As Krishna says in the Gita, Chapter 4, he says, Mm Janma-karma-ca-me-divyam-jojanathya-tathata, the one who thus understands my karma, my birth, and my actions. So the word karma, the action can refer to God's spiritual activities, Oh, we got to get you off the big screen because you keep putting that bottle up. So anyway, so it can refer to God's actions. It can refer to our duty, our actions. It can refer to the cosmic system of actions and reactions. All that is karma. And often when Krishna uses the word karma in the Gita, he's just referring to actions, not necessarily the system of karma, just what you do in this world. And so it's in that sense that we go to this verse now, 4.18, where Krishna says, karmani karma jakpashit, one who can see, one, one who can see in karma, in action, a karma in action, and akarmani cha karma jaha, and one who can see action in inaction. So that person, buddhi man, has intelligence, literally. Man in Sanskrit is... A suffix, it's the same as van, it means like Bhagavan, one who possesses, so buddhiman, one who possesses buddhi or rational intelligence. So Buddhiman Manusheshu Sayukta, that person is actually connected. That person is linked or is spiritually engaged. Krishna even performing all actions. So There's a sense here in this verse that when Krishna, that because the word akarma, that the word karma is used in a sense of actions in the world in the context. In the context of this verse, Krishna seems to be speaking with the word karma of actions in this world that trigger reactions within the system of karma. And so, in that context, where karma means something you do in this world, that triggers a reaction which binds you to this world, a-karma means uh, you are free of that system. You are beyond the laws of karma and you are in a state of a-karma, free of karma. And so Krishna is saying, and the point he's making here, of course, is obvious. And it's the same point that Krishna is making throughout the Gita, I mean, not the only point he makes, but this is one of the main points in the Gita because Arjuna, wants to leave the battlefield. And so in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna keeps telling him that uh, you want a karma, which is sort of liberation or freedom from karma, that does not mean that you shouldn't do anything. It doesn't mean inaction. And in that there is inaction in action, of course, and, and the sense in which this is true is very simple. And that is, if you act in obedience to God, if you act as a servant of God, then you're not responsible. It's like, if, you know, let's say you go to an airline counter and you say, I want to change my seat. And the agent says, I can't change your seat. And the agent says, you know, I'd like to help you, but I have to follow the rules. And those are the rules. And so it's kind of silly to start screaming at the ticket agent because that person is just doing their job. And so that's the idea. Uh, So, you know, You may say something like, well, whoever made that rule is a fool, but but you can't call that agent a fool just for trying to keep their job. And so if we understand that we're serving God and who's the highest authority. So if if we are actually because you know a lot of people claim to be serving God, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Some people claim to be serving God when they kill innocent people. That technically is not service to God. God is not evil, he doesn't condone evil actions. But if you, you know, in, in our tradition or in some other, if you're actually serving God, then there's no higher authority that can tell you, don't do what God told you. And we get an example of someone trying to do this in the case, of course, of Bali Maharaj and Vamana, where uh, Krishna himself, God himself appeared as Lord Vamana and he came to Bali Maharaj and his guru said, don't, don't do what he says. Uh, someone needs to mute their microphone. Thank you. So uh, there's a case of a so-called guru whose name technically is Professor White. Shukracharya means Professor White. So Professor White told his client, and that was kind of the relationship. It wasn't he wasn't a spiritual master. The word guru doesn't mean spiritual master. It just means a teacher or a master so some teachers are mundane and some of them are spiritual so if you have the good fortune of having a teacher who is actually spiritual and just teaching you spiritual things then it's a spiritual master so technically bali was not a spiritual master he was just a guru and the relationship was kind of teacher and client uh shoot uh I mean, uh, Bali was more like the client of Shukra. And so Mm -hmm. Shukra told him, do not obey Vishnu. Don't give him what he wants. And Bali correctly understood that since Vishnu is the highest authority, uh, I should do what he wants. So, So if we actually do what Krishna wants, then there's no karma. Why? Because karma comes to teach you not to ignore Krishna. The whole point is we come to this world and we try our luck. We try to be happy in this world. And the system, the universe is created in such a way to gradually teach you that that's not your natural duty. That's not really what you should be doing. It's not in your rational self-interest. It's not in your rational self-interest because you are part of Krishna. So if you ignore Krishna, we're part of God. If if we ignore God, we are actually ignoring ourselves. Uh, If we do not please God, we are not pleasing ourselves because we're part of God. How we are part of God, of course, is another story that's called theology. Uh, The idea is that, as explained in the Isopanishad, Om Purnamidam that Krishna, God, is creating so many universes and not creating souls. We've always existed. But he is um, eternally sustains the existence of innumerable souls who are part of Krishna, part of him, even though he's complete without them. Uh, On the material level, If someone takes away part of you or you give away part of you, then, you know, there's less of you. But of course, I mean, technically, let's say you gave away some money. Let's say you have so much money, you give some money away, then you are still complete. Uh, If you give away some of your money, you as a person are still complete. Of course, we're not just like money. We're actually souls. And uh, so our relationship with Krishna, even Krishna even says that the material energy, physical world is binna prakriti, is separated, uh, separated nature, separated energy. So just as the material world is separated from Krishna, it's also ontologically separated from us. Even though we're in the world, there is a basic incompatibility. There's a basic... Ontology, in, in uh, as a philosophical term, means uh, the philosophy of existence. Like, what is the nature of existence itself? Or how many different kinds of existence are there? The nature of being. And so, because we are eternal souls and uh, matter, property, material nature is in one sense radically different from us. It's unconscious. It's not alive and uh, whereas we are living and we are conscious. And so, interestingly, Krishna says that material nature is his separated energy. Vina means, uh, actually from the word beta, beta means different or or separation, beta, aveda, non-different or... Not uh, separated, so binna means separated. It's the same as the word beta. So Krishna calls it as binna prakriti, but it's also separate from us. And that's really our problem. Our problem is that we believe that we have a most intimate relationship with the physical world. In fact, uh, in our, let's say, our darker moments, we actually believe that we're part of the physical world. We identify with the body and so self-realization basically at the first stage as Prabhupada said first try to teach that we're not the bodies the first stage of self-realization is simply to understand uh that prakriti is a separated energy and that our real connection is not with the physical nature it's with god it's with krishna so, when we understand that and we act in that spirit of service to Krishna, then uh, we are not engaged in any material activity. And therefore, what we are doing, Krishna says, is actually technically a karma. That in our karma, in our actions, there is actually a karma, freedom from reaction. And a karma nicha karma jihad, that in inaction, there's the action. What that means is that if someone seeks a karma, freedom from the laws of karma, you still have to get up and do something. You can't just sort of lie on the road like a slug, although lying on the road, technically not like a slug, but like a python, although I don't really know exactly what the difference is, the way a slug lies and the way a python lies, but there is actually a yoga process Described in the Bhagavatam, where you just kind of like go limp. You just sort of lie there. And if some, you know, someone comes and gives you food, maybe you can eat it. And if someone doesn't give you food, then you happily just check out. That, thank God, is not the recommended process for the sage. But so what Krishna is saying here is that if you want to achieve a karma, you still have to do something. You still have to do something. Now, there's kind of, I think, a halfway point where someone may be a devotee but may not fully understand this principle in the sense of, okay, uh, I'm not interested in the material world. Uh, I'm interested in becoming Krishna conscious, so I will do as little as possible in this world. And since I'm a Brahmin, the government owes me welfare. So, actually... Um, of course, some devotees actually need it for, it could be health reasons or mother with children, whatever. But still the general point is that we should be very active for Krishna. I know when Prabhupada was here, that was a spirit that we are the most active. Of course, we are also young and passionate, so that helped. But, but still, even if you're not young and passionate, um, we should be very active for Krishna. And if we're actually serving Krishna, then there's no karma. There's no reaction because we're not working for ourselves. So I think I've explained that verse. Um, does anyone have any questions on those points? Hear me? Yes. Uh,
2: so all this uh, demonstration, all these social demonstrations and so on, it's just different flavors of the same ice cream of karma.
1: All the different what?
2: All, all these. Uh, I, I, I
1: just heard the word "flavors of ice creams." You got my attention. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all these, all these uh, social uh, demonstrations against social injustice and everything that is going on, all the unrest. This is this is all just different flavors of karma. There's not none of it is useful.
1: Uh, it's kind of quackery. It's like, in the sense of, you know, it's like, let's say someone has a disease and someone wants to help that person, they're just not a real doctor. Actually, in the name of social justice, they are, you may have noticed on the left, I mean, I have criticisms of the left and right. They are sort of unlimitedly, they're unlimitedly increasing the bodily concept of life. In other words, this person is really black, this person is really white, complete with original sin, you know, like white people somehow have some kind of original sin. It's it's very Christian in a sense. And it's very fanatical, which is also kind of you, you can see the culture is coming from, but even if it's agnostic. But obviously we're against injustice. Obviously, we want everyone treated fairly and, and more than fairly, kindly. But how do you actually achieve that? If you know anything about history, you know that today's revolutionary is tomorrow's tyrant. That today, you know, the, the person who today is, is fighting for justice, tomorrow is abusing people. And so the there, there are two ways to achieve social justice, and the materialists are going about it completely in the wrong way. One way is the Krishna conscious way is that you explain to people that we are not the body. So you elevate everyone to a higher common denominator. No one is black. No one is white. No one is materially male or female. We are all pure souls. And therefore, we are all equally dear to God. And everyone, therefore, because they are equally dear to God, should be treated equally. That was the basic argument of the Declaration of Independence, of course. And what they were, you know, created equal, endowed by the creator with certain rights. So rather than do that, the materialists are arguing, no, we have to intensify everyone's bodily concept. In other words, you can't just be a person, you have to be a body. You have to be a white person or a black person or a male or a female. And therefore, you either get a huge amount of original sin because of for which you should be, you know, just you know, tormented by guilt, or you're a victim. And even if you're not a victim, you're still a victim. In other words, if you're someone from an oppressed minority, even if you have, to be, rich, have to be rich or highly educated or very popular or elected president of the United States, it, it doesn't matter what your actual situation is. You have a group identity based on your body. And if your group is oppressed, then you are oppressed. Even if you're not oppressed, And if you belong to the wrong group, you are an oppressor, even if you're not an oppressor. So when we ignore the real, and if there is no soul, or if we're not talking about the soul, then how are we equal? What if someone's a better athlete than you? What if you're a better artist than someone else? What if someone is just more intelligent than you? What if someone is stronger than you or weaker than you? And so the solution is that you... I mean, I mean the solution among the materialists, I, w- I won't bother saying left or right, but among certain materialistic people is that everyone should be forced to identify with their body. Everyone should be forced to be a victim or an oppressor based on their body, regardless of who they really are. And no matter how many people are actually doing their job properly, let's say as police... If there's an evil person who does evil, then everyone is a racist and everyone is either an oppressor or a victim. And the people who are actually doing their job properly get zero credit. And the whole system is terrible and evil, no matter how many people are actually doing their job properly. And they say, you know, no justice, no peace. But as far as I understand, Justice means if someone commits a crime, the person is arrested and put on trial, and if they're guilty, convicted and punished. That's the normal sense of the word justice. And so when the perpetrator has been arrested, it's, I think, extremely likely will be convicted and punished severely, and yet somehow there's no justice. So uh, it's not that I don't care about people who are victims, I care about all people who are victims. People of all races and you know, all genders sometimes are victimized in this and every other country. And since everyone is equally a soul part of God, uh, you know, I, I'm concerned about everyone. Who's suffering either because they were victimized or just because of their own sheer stupidity? So so I think Krishna consciousness actually has a solution. We are trying to convince everyone to give up these actually stupid bodily identities. In other words, the body is not stupid, it's just a machine, but to identify with it is certainly not very bright. And if we all see each other's souls, if we see uh, that that on a higher level we are in fact equal as souls rather than trying to drag everyone down and force everyone not only to identify with their body but not even to be an individual everyone has to be have a group identity based on their body and that's who you really are
2: isn't uh, that, isn't that well when he spoke about victims and perpetrators Isn't that against the philosophy of Krishna consciousness?
1: No, because justice takes place on two levels. On one level, everything is ultimately an act, you know, arranged by God, and there's karma and all that. On a separate level, on a lower level, you cannot take the law into your own hands. I mean, technically, you could say, well, because there's a law of karma, I'm going to walk down the street shooting people and... I can't kill anyone unless it was their karma. So according to the law of God, you cannot take the law into your own hands. And if you do take the law into your own hands, and if you treat people in a way which does not correspond with, does not correspond to their behavior in this life, and your social position, in other words, are are you actually a police person, are you actually a judge? Do you represent the government? Has this person violated some law in this life? In this life, you have to treat everyone according to their behavior in this life and, you, and according to reasonable laws of the state. If despite our best efforts to protect innocent people and punish guilty people, someone suffers or if someone enjoys, then that's by a higher law. So the fact there's a law of karma does not justify you in being indifferent to human injustice, nor does it justify you in taking the law in your own hands. So it goes on. It it, it actually takes place on two levels.
2: Well, um, following up that, um, what about the uh, death penalty? As this is seems seems to be a very controversial point that we present. That yeah is. Is according to the law of karma, the death penalty is just is justice, and who will enforce it? Yeah, the
1: death penalty is probably almost as controversial in our preaching as uh, the purity of cow stool. But anyway, but regarding regarding the death penalty, obviously. <laughs> by the way, you got to pay extra for my jokes; they're not free. So, regarding the death penalty. The argument generally goes that it is not applied equally, that people from certain communities are more likely to get the death penalty. So that, I mean, clearly, so there's two issues here. And that is, if the death penalty were applied uh, fairly without regard to a person's kind of body someone has or the community they come from, would it be justified? Another issue is, even if one believes the death penalty is justified, should it be uh, continued, if, in fact, the justice system is unable to apply it fairly? So those are actually two separate issues. Um, if it were the case, if it were the case that we were our bodies, For me, that would be a very depressing uh, turn of events. But if it were the case that we are our bodies and that you only get one chance on the merry-go-round, you know, just everybody gets one ride and that's it. And when you die, you will not exist forever. Then I think you could argue that, Jesus, I mean, do you really want to kill this person because this is their only life? And they, you know, they, you know, for eternal past time, they didn't exist for eternal future time. They won't exist. They have this tiny little window of existence and you're going to snuff it out. However, if we are eternal souls and we continue to exist, then it's a, uh, so to speak, a brand new ballgame, you know, then it's, then you have to look at it differently. So should we make Someone could say, well, you can't make laws based on religious beliefs. Okay, then there goes democracy because democracy is based on equality, which is certainly a religious belief since it has absolutely no empirical basis. In fact, it's interesting how there's this like fanatical determination to show that all different physical groups or racial groups are are the same because Because if there's no soul, if you don't accept Thomas Jefferson's argument that we are created equal, that in the eyes of the creator we're equal, then you have to show material equality. Now, what's interesting is people feel morally required to show that all different ethnic and racial groups and genders are equal, but they're unconcerned about inequality among individuals. In other words, they're obsessed with body types. But even if let's say, even if all races, genders, ethnicities, et cetera, were equal, then you'd still have a problem that within each group or between groups, people aren't individually equal. So why is it that group equality is somehow the highest moral principle of our age, but individual inequality doesn't bother anyone? In fact, if you say you're a socialist, you're kind of politically dead. So, I mean, there's all kinds of contradictions. There's all kinds of, also when I, you know, when I was young, the idea was equal opportunity. That's I mean, literally what the battle cry was the civil rights movement, equal opportunity. The Lyndon Johnson, they, they created this department in government called Equal Opportunity Office. I worked for it. I had a student job on campus at Berkeley and I did very important things like sitting around uh chatting on unrelated topics with other workers who are sitting around and other things which in america probably you know would not be the country it is today without that essential service i performed. but anyway so um it's because because now basically i mean with some violations here and there but essentially there's equal opportunity and there's no scientific evidence that people don't have equal opportunity in general for the most part there's no evidence and so if there's an unequal outcome then the only possible explanation is that there isn't really equal opportunity so the idea that there's not there's systemic discrimination not really equal opportunity is actually a backward logic it's not because they actually prove that there is systemic inequality It's because the outcomes are still not equal, and that could not possibly exist since we're all equal unless there wasn't really equal opportunity. So it's kind of like, because I didn't get the outcome I want, therefore, to give an example of this, uh, when I was, again, I'm I'm not giving an opinion on race or anything like that. I'm just observing the kinds of reasoning that go on. When I was, I used to take walks at UCLA and I'd stop in the law school because they had very good bathrooms that were open, you know, early in the morning and, um, and water fountains. So, you know, you got to know where to walk. So when I go, I'm here one time I was in the law school and, um, they had this sign on the, you know, activities board, bulletin board said stop racism at UCLA law. And what, what this little flyer explained was that in the latest. Uh, admission season for for the law school, uh, less people of a particular race were admitted. And therefore the admissions committee was racist. I mean, from a logical point of view, one possibility, I don't don't think there was any evidence for it, one possibility is the admissions committee is racist. Another possibility is they were not racist and just let people in based on their qualifications and a particular physical type. In other words, they're not individuals, they're just, they're, they're, they have a total group identity that a particular type, uh, n- not as many qualified people applied because it varies from year to year. That's obviously, it, and I think it's very likely that is what happened, but the mere fact that the outcome wasn't what they wanted proves retroactively that the selection process was racist. And so uh, there's not a lot of serious thinking going on. It's just, it's much easier to call people names. It's like in it's like in Iran, they have these, uh, they did have like these morality police in Saudi Arabia. They'll just like stop people in the street, man like a mass talking to a woman or a woman doesn't have her head fully covered. Then they stop, arrest them, and send them to uh, a conservative Hare Krishna temple to get retrained. But anyway, so so the idea here is that um, there are some people who are like that. They are um, they're obnoxious. They just they want to call everybody else names. And everybody else is a racist. Everyone is a sexist. Some people are sexist and racist, and they're not good people. But a lot of people are just, you know, they're just normal people. But everyone, because you belong to the wrong group, therefore you're a sexist and a racist. And they remind me of these morality police in Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, I could speak forever on this, but it's not exactly a spiritual topic. It is a spiritual topic. In this, I mean, I find in general public discourse is at an a uh, an extremely impressive level of stupidity at the present time. And the, you know, the media, they just want to sell. You know, they they have a saying in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. So that all they want to do is make money. And the best way to make money is to, you know, start shrieking and crying that every, you know, this and that. And it's just, it's crazy. So it's actually an interesting question based on what Prabhupada taught, whether democracy is really going to make it. because. They had democracy in ancient Athens. That's kind of like the the model, you know, ancient Athenian democracy. It didn't last that long. And so, you know, whether it's really efficient to let the most important decisions be made by sudras. I mean, it's it's an interesting question because in any society, certainly in this country, the largest Varna group is the sudras. There are far more sudras. I mean, many, many times more sudras than there are Brahmins. Or even kshatriyas or Vaishyas. It's like, you know, so society is like a pyramid. And so when you uh so it, it's it's sort of like an accepted wisdom, it's like it's like as if God came down and personally said it that uh the the best possible system of government is that extremely complex decisions. About governing, you know, incredibly complicated issues and government. The best people to decide who should do that are shudras. Shudras, people who are uneducated, people that know very very little about the issues, are still magically the most qualified to decide. And it's interesting because I have a very good friend, devotee, who's a lawyer. He's actually a very successful lawyer, trial lawyer. And he said the rule is when you're arguing before a jury. Is that you speak in a way that a twelve-year-old could understand, and if you're lucky, you won't be talking over the heads of the jury. But you and and so. And and they do this not because they're you know not because they're 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 bad people, the lawyers, but because that's that's how you win. You say things that a twelve-year-old could understand, and so the. I, Popular democracy wasn't even the original American system, actually. It was the electoral college. It's it's that, um, anyway, I won't go into the whole history, is that each state would choose the most respectable or senior people they considered most learned. They would go somewhere and actually choose the president. And then with Andrew Jackson, it got transformed into popular democracy. That's another story. So here we are, I mean, getting back to Krishna consciousness, here we are with our message. And I am convinced, I believe on rational grounds, that it's this message which is needed. It's Prabhupada's message which is needed to actually save this country or any other country. Krishna consciousness. And that's why it's so urgent that we spread our message in a way that people can understand. The newspapers, by the way, it's not only trial lawyers. Newspapers know it too. They probably, I don't know if they aim at 12-year-olds or maybe they go a little lower than that. But they definitely, they're they are just rabble-rousers. They just want to stir up a big commotion, and there's almost no intelligent discussion of these things. So what we are seeing is uh, another thing in, in terms of Prabhupada's philosophy with the sexual revolution and drugs and this and that, People have become extremely passionate. Prabhupada himself said that. He said that the standard used to be the mode of goodness. When I was a kid in the evil 50s, Hollywood thinks it's the evil 50s because, you know, people were running around having sex with everyone else. And that proves they were repressed, you know, stupid people. But actually, I remember when I grew up, the people were nice, that, that being modest, being modest was respected. Now you have to be a narcissist. It's the age of narcissism where you have to boldly. I've noticed this, how it's, it's crazy. I I was taking a job walk at UCLA several months ago and they were having one of those campus tours, which they always have. And for this one was for prospective students. They were like high school students and they want them to choose UCLA. The prestigious schools, uh, they need a lot of people to be cannon fodder, be rejected, because it's very prestigious to accept a very low percentage of the applicants. And so, for example, for Harvard, it would be an absolute catastrophe if they couldn't reject a lot of people. And so I noticed one time when I was at Harvard, I just happened to walk into the admissions office, and it was all about, yes, please apply. Don't think that you can't make it. You know, they were really They really had a full court press and everyone, please apply to Harvard because if if, if Harvard, for example, found out, let's say next year, they accepted 30% of the applicants, it, it would be an absolute catastrophe. It would be a catastrophe because the schools actually compete to see who can reject more people because it makes them more elite, it makes them more prestigious. But anyway, I, I just haven't had to mention that. But I forgot how I, was, I was actually making a different point. But, um, but anyway, the upshot, you know, you, you know, really, the point here is that oh yeah. So um, if people always say that I'm not, I'm not advocating another system of government. I'm not getting involved. I'm just saying that people say yeah, democracy may be bad or imperfect, but it's the best system people have ever had. And what I find really fascinating is that practically all the people that say that have never studied political history. It's just something you say because everyone else is saying it. In any case, um, I'm not, again, saying let's stop democracy, but it's just not self-evident. It's not obvious to me that the people most qualified to choose the leaders of a huge nation are shudras. It's... Just not obvious to me. Anyway, we live in a very crazy. I know. I know. I know the point I was making. So there's so much passion now. You know, free sex and free, you know, whatever, free everything. You can do whatever you want. And this and oh, so oh, getting back to UCLA. Remember now. So UCLA. They were talking to these students. They, they were telling them, "Yeah, we have this study abroad program where you can you know take a year and study in Europe or South America or wherever you want." And then, and then the guide said, "And uh, you know you can create your own program. You can do whatever you want. You know it's you decide." And I was just thinking, "What about the remote possibility that an older person with about a thousand times more experience and maturity actually knows something? that a 19-year-old doesn't know. But it's just like this narcissism. They have these signs that you say, like, yeah, it's all about you, and you're so wonderful. And it's interesting, because one aspect of capitalism is that you have to sell your product or service. And the way you sell, there's basically two ways to sell products and services. You either seduce people by, if you buy this, uh, you know, outdoor plastic swimming pool, then all kinds of sexy women will be, you know, will jump on you because that's, or, or if you just eat this brand of broccoli, then, you know, beautiful women will be all over you because obviously the the sexiest women in the world are looking for people who eat the right brand of broccoli. I mean, that's, everyone knows it. And so, so the idea is either, you know, that, you know, seduce you, like, you know, trying to arouse you sexually and then direct that, energy towards their product, or just in this sort of another aspect of the same thing, flattering you, you're great, you're wonderful. And so in the the capitalist society, the lingua franca, that means like the common language of the world, is this idiotic flattery and feeding people's narcissism. And so we live in an environment where everyone is competing around us to flatter us more effectively, to seduce us more effectively so that we will spend our money on their product or service. And therefore the whole atmosphere of the age is that everyone deserves to be flattered. Like, like in these idiotic little children's sports leagues, like, no, nobody wins. Everybody gets a trophy. And, you know, and studies show this actually ruins the game for most of the people. Like trophies become absolutely meaningless. And, and it's, It's interesting because people have become, and and social scientists are now noting that um, the new generations of young people are becoming incredibly fragile. They're fragile. They're like, their egos, their, their emotional stability is extremely fragile. For example, Brown University, which is an Ivy League school, someone came to speak on campus who was actually a very intelligent highly educated scholar who just happened to be conservative i think it was christina summer she's a feminist but very intelligent and debunks all the stupid nonsense of, of, of radical feminism and shows you know false statistics false studies she shows what the real studies are and so But because she's, and she's not even like real conservative. She's not saying women stay home, you know, keep the ladies barefoot and pregnant, keep them on the farm. You know, it's not that kind of conservatism. But because she's not completely in lockstep with sort of mindless extremist feminism, um, her coming to campus and disagreeing with some of the students, that posed a medical threat to those students. And so they had to create a a safe space. And in that safe space, they actually had a nice room and they had Play-Doh. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. They had Play-Doh. They had like little children's games and everything. Because when I was young, you know, very short time ago, when I was young, the whole point of going to college was to, uh, to debate. You know, you go there, you test your ideas, you challenge other people it's like this very almost like athletic intellectual environment where you go there and you and you, you know and, and you debate and you talk and you learn now people have to be protected because someone is coming to campus who doesn't agree with you and and you know this may threaten your your well-being may threaten your sanity and so we have a protected space where you don't have to be exposed to anyone who disagrees with you And so we live in such a cuckoo age. Does someone have their hand up? Oh, Ananda, good old Ananda.
3: Hi, Maharaj. Nice to see you. you Nice to see you. (laughs) I have a couple of comments about this. Um, I, I, you know, I I really appreciate your perspective and there's, um, you know, this generation is definitely more sensitive and with that comes fragility. And I do think that part of it, comes from more complexity, and also part of it comes from growing up in broken families that are less secure.
1: Yeah, good point. Very good point. So that, people right,
3: are far so less, so less resourced. Yeah, I want to make
1: one comment on that because you made a very good point. And that is with, the, with this new doctrine that emerged, you know, free sex, and that there is no intrinsic value in actually being faithful to your partner. In other words, there's no special value in keeping your vow. There's no special value in a lifelong marriage where people are really committed on higher principles, not just like, okay, you're you you know, you're kind of working for me now, but tomorrow I met someone else and they're kind of like what I'm into now. You know, the idea of nobility, the idea of making a lifelong vow and honoring it, it's just, you know, it's out the window. And it's just what you said, all the studies show all the studies show that, for example, the overwhelming majority of people in prison come from broken homes. A very, you know, a, a, a disproportionately high number of people who commit suicide come from broken homes. You know, people who, uh, people who, who are, come from broken homes are more uh, likely to be poor economically poor. And so and what's very interesting is that you know you have these famous science deniers on on the right who say there's no human caused climate change and all that. What I find interesting is that there's a probably a higher amount of science denial on the left. Especially in things regarding gender regarding I mean I'm all for everyone knows like for example I started Krishna West you know, honk if you like Krishna West. Anyway, I started Krishna West and um, at least half our leaders are women, which I'm very proud of. The, the women have, you know, and they're they're excellent devotees and they're doing incredible service. And just seeing the amazing service that women are doing in Krishna West as leaders in, in many areas, I just thought, my God, how much talent in the last 50 years in ISKCON was wasted. How much to and and we we don't it's not like we have talent to waste because we're such a powerful huge movement, so yeah. Anyway, sorry, but but what you said about broken homes absolutely true. I was talking to a who was I talking to yesterday or the other day about this? Some scholar, an important, I mean, an intelligent person. I can't I can't remember. I do so many programs. It was a. what's the cause of this and uh yes parenting also they now social scientists attribute this to sort of wrong-headed oh i know i i i ran to this lady in my neighborhood and she's uh she was an elementary school teacher an intelligent educated lady and she was talking about this how they call it helicopter parenting like like you don't give the child any freedom you don't give the child any independence you don't let the child uh, you know you have to watch hover over the child at every moment do everything for the child and there have been a lot of it, it it's kind of emerging as a consensus among social scientists they're trying to figure out what made these generations so fragile so a, a dramatic change in parenting techniques and also i think um uh, if i add one more thing i'll turn it back over to you ananda one more point <laughs> one more point is the um I think the, the rise of this of almighty political correctness, like, so people are, are actually, because you're not allowed to disagree. It's like, you may be a good, decent person, but you just disagree on some points about how to deal with race issues or gender issues. And so you're a sexist, you're a racist, and everyone's kind of been terrorized, socially terrorized into shutting up because on a college campus if you express a conservative view even if it's you know it's it's not sexist it's not racist it's just a conservative view you'll be almost torn limb from limb and so people are not exposed to different views they try to suppress different views and uh just like when i was at berkeley in 60 uh oh i'm revealing too much when i was at berkeley I was at Berkeley Berkeley during during the revolutionary time. When I was at Berkeley about, as a young high school graduate about 11 years ago. And so anyway, it was during all the the revolutionary stuff in Berkeley. And it was interesting because the conservatives held power. Ronald Reagan was the governor. And uh, I mean, I didn't think of the university as conservative, but because people were going way to the left, so they were seen as conservative. And they tried to stop free speech. In fact, there was a Berkeley free speech movement precisely because the right tried to suppress leftist speech on campus. What happened is the left took power on campus. Studies show that when I went to school and even after that, uh, the typical proportion of people who are politically left to right on the faculty, it was about two to one, like left to right. For There were like, for every conservative person on the faculty, there would be like two people on the left. Now it's about thirty-two to one, because basically there's been a purge. Because you know you have to get approved to get tenure, or you don't stay around the university. Even get to get hired in a non-tenure position, and so the leftist thinkers have purged the right from the university. They've purged them, and because they now dominate most universities, obviously not all most universities, um, they're now trying to suppress speech on the right. And so it's interesting, whoever gets power tries to suppress speech. One last thing, and I promise I'll turn it over. And that is, if you look at the universities, you may have an image in your mind of the Western university as a bastion of free speech and debate. Wrong. Western universities have existed for about a 1,000 years they began as medieval church schools, all of them. And so they were obviously, you know, unless you were in line with the Vatican, you don't get a job, you don't speak, you're not part of the university system. Then I won't go into the whole history, the gradual shift to secularism, you know, the 1600s scientific revolution, the 1800s, you know, the the enlightenment, and then the revolution of the 19th century, Darwinism. and this. So anyway, it, it, it's a whole dialectic process. But what I mean to say is there was just actually a little window. It wasn't very long, it was at, at the very most, it was maybe like 10% of the history of the Western University where you kind of could exchange views. Probably much, probably more like 5%. And then again, the university reverted to its historical role as a an institution which indoctrinates. It's an institution which actually indoctrinates. And so the, idea, so the idea of a university is really a free speech community. That's 90 to 95% of the time of its existence, that's not been the case. And so now they're being indoctrinated with all kinds of moral relativity and religion is kind of like, you know, from a socialist Marxist perspective, I don't think so. But go ahead, Ananda.
3: Maharaj, so it seems to me that this what you're speaking to, it, there's just different levels of consciousness. And to 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 develop a capacity to be able to hold um different views and hold different perspectives while holding one's own is is a skill, you know, and it's it takes practice. And I don't necessarily expect, you know, I'm my, I'm working with my son. He's 15, and he's on the debate team. And
2: oh my god, 15!
3: Yeah, yeah. Oh my. Yeah. He he made it states <laughs> on debate freshman year too. Oh really? So That's well. great. Yeah.
1: chip off the old block.
3: But um, yeah. But still, there's this this. There, it's a capacity, and it's it's you know developmentally, it, it it probably, ordinarily, if it comes at all, would come in the mid 20s, or later. That's yeah. Capacity. That capacity to be able to be able to say, I can fully understand where you're coming from. And I completely disagree. And you totally have a right to think that way. And I can see and think
1: it through how you're seeing that way. I would say, I would, I mean, I agree with you. I would say that, I mean, in terms of neurological development, you're probably right. I would say that even at a younger age people could be trained, if not to really understand it deeply, at least to have a little bit of manners. And and I know when I was in a high school debate team, and uh, you have to, you don't know until you get there, which side you're going to argue. And so the whole point is, I won't go into this now, but I actually won a gold medal, city gold medal in debate in high school. And I actually didn't, you know, they have all those, like, you know, they have all their data. Now it's computers, used to be index cards. And I actually convinced my debate partner who then went on to become a lawyer that we shouldn't do any research. We shouldn't bring any cards in. I thought it'd just be it. Cause I'd always, I, I always, I already thought high school is absurd. And basically I just made everything up. We just made things. I would say like, I would quote different journals and you know, newspapers, quote the congressional record. And I was making the whole thing up and we won. But anyway, so, but yeah, I agree with you. So it's in that atmosphere that here we are, and we're trying to present Krishna consciousness. We're trying to present, and we have obviously a very different political philosophy. We have the Varnasram system is, let's say, the Varna system created by Krishna is a pre-industrial system. It's predicated upon an agrarian economy. Marx, for all of his lunacy, uh, wasn't a bad historian. And so he Show the relationship between economic systems and political and social systems. For just to give one simple example, and this is why we can't establish Varnashram. You know, you can have Varnashram conferences until the cows come home. But the real reason we can't establish Varnashram is because it requires an agrarian system, which is why Prabhupada, at the same time he, he called for Varnashram, told us to get land and have farms. Like if you have a hunting gathering economy you know you hunt and gather berries and nuts or whatever you know you strip a forest very quickly so you cannot have large-scale communities because economically you can't feed yourself and so you have small communities and small communities everyone has to do a bit of everything like in a small Hari christian temple let's say there's a temple with six people you can't just be a full-time Pujari in a temple with six people or you know you have to do many things and so then when you get agriculture you can store grains And because you have a large food supply, you can have cities, you get differentiation, you know, division of labor, you get specialization, you get expertise in many areas, you get the arts, you get... And and so, and then the industrial revolution, everything changes again. So basically, we are trying to teach a social system, which is absolutely based on an an agrarian economy in a post-industrial
2: economy. And... so how and how do we present krishna
1: are there any other points here did i cut you off and under do you have another point
3: i had one more it was about the african the african-american community and because you know on one hand um you know of course spiritually advanced people of any color and race or tribe are going to recognize that you know from the level of soul, regardless of what kind of karmas we're up against, we have free choice and we can create our own um, opportunities. And at the same time, there are these issues that they're they're not made up; they're very real around um, safety and um, silencing. You know, fear to speak out. That is like this bullying culture that is really inherent, especially in the South among. Um, you know, with, with African-Americans where, and, you know, I,
1: you know, I I, I, I would, I would say, yeah, I would say that's definitely true in rural South. I mean, most of the, almost all the college cities in in the South vote Democrat, and if you go to cities like Atlanta or Nashville, Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, they all vote Democrat. And so, you know, the state of North Carolina often goes Democrat, elects Democrat government, Democratic governors and, and senators and everything, same for Virginia now because the population shift to the DC suburbs. So there are problems, there are absolutely problems. However, what's the solution?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, what is the, even for example, the movement to stop slavery, it was led by Christians. It wasn't yeah. led by the secularists. Yeah, so,
3: I, Quake, the Quakers were huge
1: leaders yeah. so, so I So I think yeah. that, um, principles. so I'm all in favor of treating everyone equally. But at the same time, I believe there's something very racist about the leftist approach to race issues. And I'll tell you what, I mean, one aspect aspect of it, I find to be extremely racist. And that is black people, like white people, like every other group of people on earth, some of them are good, some of them are bad. And the point is that this this leftist move that if a non-white person does something bad, it's the white person's fault. So it's like, and, and so under, if you ask a simple question, like if they have much higher crime rates, for example, or much higher rates of abandoning their children. And so to say that it's because of what we did to them, under what conditions, as a general principle, let's say in jurisprudence, in jurisprudence in in, in the justice system, under what conditions is someone not responsible for what they've done? Mm -hmm. If it's a child, or if someone is a mental child, And so to say that it's like this deterministic, this deterministic uh, view of history.
3: Well, social construction, the understanding that it's not just, you know, it's like a spirit-based we're in charge versus the influence of our lineage and our history and past However,
1: However, I do not believe it's a deterministic system. In other words, it's a pressure. However, what we find is that in this country, A Black person was elected president. You know, there are Black billionaires. There are many, many famous, very successful people. So my point is that I see people in all different bodies as people. Mm -hmm. And I tend to see, for example, I spent, from the age I was 20 years old, to the time I was, let's say, uh, 45 or, or more, you know, I was... Constantly being discriminated against as a Hare Krishna. I was being ridiculed, sometimes physically attacked, denied. Let's say sometimes I'd want to rent a house and they would not rent the house to us because we we're Hare Krishna's. I experienced a huge amount of discrimination for you know for decades. But 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 my point here is that um I believe that, I don't believe in deterministic theories of history because there's no evidence for them. Deterministic means that people are not merely influenced by the past or by the present, but they are so completely determined by it that they're actually not responsible for their own behavior. And I think that's very demeaning to anyone it's applied to. So I think people of all races and all genders are in fact responsible for their behavior unless they are somehow mentally impaired. And so for people in certain political groups to constantly exonerate, constantly say they're not responsible, they're not responsible. If they do bad things, it's not their fault, it's our fault, I think they're creating monsters. I think that to treat these people as neurologically infantile. You're saying these are not mental adults. Because adults are responsible for what they do, but these people aren't responsible because they're not mental adults, that they've been so heavily this and heavily that, that um they're not responsible for their own actions. I, I, th- I think that's extremely dangerous. And I know, for example, in any university in this country, and I won't say everyone, but I'd say you know, 99% the universities in this country if someone is non-white that that increases their chance of being admitted if you go to the websites the homepage of all the best universities in the country you will see non-white people overrepresented in all the pictures of students
3: unless you're asian or choose well, again
1: because they because the Asians yeah because the perception is that they just So I'm not saying that one race is better than another. I'm not saying one person. I'm simply saying is I do not ascribe to a deterministic view of history. I think it's unscientific. And I think it's based on backward logic. And I give people of all races the dignity and the respect of telling them you're responsible for what you do. And one person, by the way, who absolutely agrees with this is Barack Obama. He gave a talk when he was president, got him in some trouble, because he said the real problem in the black community is absentee fathers, people father children and then leave. And actually, if you look at black history, what you find is before the civil rights movement, I'm not saying you know that it wasn't good, but before the civil rights movement, the divorce rate or the single parent home in the black community was a tiny fraction of what it is today. Unemployment was higher among whites than it was among blacks. The number of people incarcerated was much, much lower. And so, you know, the philosopher Hegel said, but of course, if you say these, if I say these things publicly, then I'm evil and I'm the devil. But it, it just happens to be true. The philosopher Hegel said, because he was a great philosopher of history, that one big mistake people make is that they... They just think they're absolutely superior to past ages. And every age, even if it did some things that we consider reprehensible, had some understandings about some things which we could really use. And so the idea of categorically rejecting, it's what I call sort of uh, historical narcissism, that people in the past were just totally inferior to us. Whatever they thought about any subject was inferior to what we think about those subjects because, for example, they, they committed this moral sin. So, but as far as devotees, maybe I could, um, the real Krishna conscious point here is I believe devotees should not get sucked into political correctness. But rather, I mean, nor should we be insensitive. We should obviously be sympathetic to all people who are suffering. But you know when a black cop kills uh, when a white cop kills a black person uh unfairly, you know not that the black person was you know coming at him with a machine gun or something, when he unfairly killed that's evil. And when a black person kills a white person, that's injustice. and actually it happens more often than black than white people killing blacks in this country I mean they're, they're so in Baltimore they had all these riots, race riots because of black person was arrested and then died in the police van and he was arrested by black cops. So all I'm saying is that um, I think we should be compassionate. We should care about people, but not just be sort of fall into mindless political correctness. I think we should actually think and look at all the facts and then do everything we can to elevate everyone and, and, and to restore justice. So I'm all in favor of justice and helping people that need our help. I'm all in favor of it. But but my theory is actually because nowadays the it, it's with political correctness there's only one group of people you're still allowed to bash publicly and that's white people. You can't bash women, you can't white men, you can't bash non-white people because immediately you're a racist. The and, and because people come to this material world because they're envious and they want to lord it over there's only one group left in this country that within political correctness you can still constantly criticize and make fun of and those are white people it's the
2: only group left so anyway I,
1: i'm all in favor of justice any other question well,
0: Actually, Mars. We normally we'll end at six six thirty normally. But thank you so much for your time. And if uh, there are more questions, is there is there a way, Mars, that people can continue kind of corresponding with you, or do you give regular classes
1: online somewhere? I give lots of classes all the time. Uh, here, I'm going to put in the chat thing. The um... by the way, I should say, I'm absolutely against racism. In other words, judging people based on their race. Everyone should be seen as who they really are based on their individual merit. I don't shove people into groups. Well, if I meet a person, man, woman, any race, I, I'm just gonna see who that person is. And if I see that person's a victim of injustice, then I will absolutely support removing that injustice. I just wanna proceed rationally and not just, you know, and be fair. I don't think it, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be fair to one person, by being unfair to someone else. So I'm going to put in the chat thing here, uh, Ananda Leela, Ananda Lila, she's there. And uh, if you write to her, she can, yeah, I give actually too many, well, not too many classes, but I am exhausted. So, and I'd like to thank all of you. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm bringing these points up not to tell you what you should you know think about political issues, But just that, you know, we're supposed to be Brahmins, we're supposed to be intelligent, we're supposed to check all the facts. There's one Harvard professor, Steven Pinker, very famous Harvard professor, he writes books, and he just mentioned, he's actually on the left, he's actually on the left, he's not a conservative. He just mentioned the fact that in certain minority communities, there are higher crime rates, and he was was, um, insulted and, and almost ostracized because the left demanded that certain things be censored. they not, they're not be spoken. They not be told. And so I believe devotees personally should know all the facts, should know all the facts and with compassion, treat everyone as a soul. Don't treat people as bodies and just try to see how to help people by giving them Krishna consciousness. And we live in an extremely crazy age with all this sex, and consumerism, people are so, just last point, and then I'll really let you go. I won't let you, you won't have to pay me if there's overtime. But the real explanation for all this is in the Bhagavad Gita, I think it's 1820, 1831, where Krishna talks about the difference between uh, intelligence, buddhi, in the mode of passion and the mode of goodness. In the mode of goodness, you see the differences. People are different. However, Behind those differences, you see we're all one because we're all spirit soul. We're all part of God. And so what really is important to you is not the differences. It's the fact that we're all equal. That's what really strikes you. And therefore, on an individual level, whatever someone's abilities may be, not just group identity, on an individual level, the people are individuals, um, you try to be kind to everyone because you see everyone is equal spiritually. In the mode of passion, you see that every one of the differences are actually fundamental. Like men and women are just different. And people of different groups are different. People of different nationalities, ethnicities, races People are just different. And you think the differences are just the last word. People are just different. And I wanna be with my people. And so the real problem is there's this overwhelming uh, preponderance of the mode of passion, consumerism, bodily identity, Everyone, you know, people just into their bodies and everyone has to be sexy and they've got to put all kinds of things on their bodies. And, and it, it's such bodily consciousness that people are losing their power. They're losing their power to see everyone a spirit. So therefore, the only way you can love minorities is to hate another group. So they don't really, I'll, I'll give you one simple example. Because it's been said that these, you know, justice, you know, social justice warriors don't so much love the minorities as they hate the white people. For example, South Africa, you're a little young, but, you know, years ago they had this huge movement against apartheid. It was like the biggest thing in the world. Every college campus, every city, the whole world kind of united, you know, against apartheid and marching and going to South Africa and everything. So what happened? They stopped apartheid. South Africa got one of the worst governments on earth, one of the most corrupt governments on earth, a government which there was a minor strike. So the president of the country, you know, a black, sent the army to just massacre all the mine workers. Why? He owned stock in the mine. You know, it has one of the highest crime rates in the world, one of the worst, most corrupt governments in the world, one of the highest murder rates in the world. And so my simple question is this, where are all the people that cared about them? It's like, let's say like like Ananda, you have a child, you love your child. So it's not that you only care about your child for some political issue. I mean, you know, all of your life, you will love and care about your child. And for the rest of your life, you will do everything in your power to help your child. That's what it means to love somebody. So if they weren't just being self-righteous in the anti-apartheid, if they were actually being righteous, where are they now? Frankly, South Africa needs them as much as ever. It's one of the most dangerous countries in the world. It's terrible. No one gives a damn about it. Because they don't really care about those people. It's just self-righteousness. For example, in Pakistan, they had this military government with this guy. What was his name? Uh, Musharraf. And all the social justice warriors, you know, kick government out. We want democracy. So there was so much international pressure from the left. You know, that they, 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 they overthrew the, the military government. when the country was actually going much better. Pakistan now has become madness, insanity, political, you know, if you say one word against the Muslims, they'll just shoot you dead in the street, you know, shoot women, girls that wanna to go to school. It's, it's called a failed state, it's, it's insanity. No one gives a damn. They don't really care about those people. What about all the apartheid, which is going on today in Africa? Africa is a very racist place in various ways. For example, you get all these countries like Mali and, and the Central African Republic, and Burkina Faso and all these countries, which are sub-Saharan, and the northern part of the country is, tends to be racially and by religion, uh, sort of Middle Eastern Muslim. You know, the Maghreb, North African coast is, is racially sort of Arab and, and Muslim. And so you get these countries which the northern part of the country is Muslim, and then the southern part of the country tends to be black, And Christian, you know, those are rough generalizations, but something like that. So you get these countries, there's apartheid, where like you go to the wrong part of the country. I mean, there's all kinds of problems. There's there's racism in Africa, because there are different black races, there are different tribes. And so there's all this apartheid, there's all this, no one gives a damn about it. They just want to bash a certain group. And so it's self-righteousness. Where are they? They don't care about they really cared about these people. Where are they now? Whereas when a devotee or a Christian missionary actually so, you know when if, if we go to one of these countries, you care about the people. you stay there. you know you, like it's like in a marriage, you have to hang into your marriage in good times and bad times, you know assuming your partner is not really. know cross certain lines if these social justice warriors really care about these people why do they vanish the very moment they don't have white people to bash why are they gone forever they'll never they don't care about these people they'll never be back they couldn't care less about them so Krishna consciousness is bringing a completely different level of care, of concern. We eternally care about blacks and whites and they're just bodies. We're all souls. We have to change the discourse. The real solution to racism is to convince everyone that we're all eternal souls. There are no black people. There are no white people. We're all eternal souls. And therefore, everyone has to be treated with love and dignity. The leftist solution to it is you balkanize society. You divide people up into the evil people and the and the and the noble victims, and you put everyone against everyone else. So how many groups are going to be? Maybe there should be, you know it's it's rather than elevate people to the higher common denominator, where everyone you know can actually have love for everyone, and everyone really is one. So therefore, I'm saying we have to preach because the Krishna conscious message is the only way to save these crazy societies. It's the only way to save this crazy world. There's so much in the bodily concept, so much lust, so much sex, so much vanity, so much narcissism. So that now in the White House, we have the narcissist in chief. You know, it's just this lust and passion and narcissism, and you know, it's like animals fight, every little bodily group, you know, you know, fights every other group to get what they want. This is madness. So that's my message. You know, the world needs Krishna consciousness, the world needs Krishna's message. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much,
0: Marsh. One thing i'm i'm taking away from this is and and i I appreciate the kind of the breadth that you explained the complexities of the various narratives that are going on and that the application of dharma the application of justice is not so black and white literally it's it's very subtle and and it takes kind of the more subtle understanding of of spiritual consciousness to really bring about change and so this is a this is a big conversation so thank you for being here and and stoking the fire a little bit, we appreciate it so much.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm um, happy to. I know what I'm saying. You know, in, you know. In some places, people think you know I'm a racist and a sexist and blah blah blah. I just see everyone a spirit soul, and I and I give people of all races the dignity of considering them to be adults if they actually are adults by age and are not neurologically impaired. Then I see them as adults, and I give them the dignity the dignity and the respect of holding them responsible for their behavior. Thank
0: you so much, Marge. We're we're very grateful to have you with us.